On the news line with us now, Professor Nick Clark. He's a Ph.D., a professor of political science over at Susquehanna University. happens to be the director of their Innovation Center and director of public policy. Uh, and he's the department head at political science. I always say that's because they some of these professors stu- la- stay too late at the staff meetings, and then they end up department head. But uh, how did you get sentenced with department head, Nick? How did that happen? I think you probably have it right there. <laughs> stay too uh, late. Everyone sort of takes their turn, but yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, so you share the punishment. You cycle it around. I got you. Okay, so well, it's you. Yep, yep. All right, well, you'll be done before too long, we hope. Okay, so Nick, uh, thank you so much for checking in. We've talked to you on a number of occasions in the past about all things in our body politic. Let's start out with, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to summarize the way Tucker Carlson summarized it last night. He said, let's talk about the illegal mishandling of classified documents but not President Trump. We're talking about uh, President Biden. Your view on this, much ado about nothing, or is this going to turn into a big, a bigger and bigger thing? Uh, what's, what's your initial reaction to all this? Well, I think it is a big thing just because of how, you know, the documents have been treated with President Trump. And so the DOJ absolutely had to appoint, you know, a special prosecutor to look at this. You know, anytime that happens, it becomes a big thing right there. And so I think, you know, for Biden politically and potentially legally, this this is going to be a, a really tough thing for him to have to handle. Is this the kind of thing that can dog a president to the point of uh, keeping them out of re-election? Because we know he's not supposed to have classified documents there. So you know, the, in a technical sense, the violation of the law, well, many laws, has already happened. Intent and, uh, you know, ignorance uh, start to factor into it. But uh, is this the kind of thing that can start to weigh down a re-election campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly because I think, you know, especially last spring, there was a consensus emerging, you know, across the country and the parties, really, that, you know, the the two likely nominees looked like President Trump and President Biden. And there were, you know, strong contingents in either party that sort of said, let's move on. Biden had somewhat of a bounce back uh, within the Democratic Party, I think, in the fall, especially after the midterm elections not leading to the sort of uh, Republican sweep that people expected it might. And so I think he was, you know, regaining some credibility internally within the party. You know, he's clearly planning to make an announcement. I think he has decided to run. Uh, But this is going to bring back all those old doubts. This is enormous baggage. And so I think... The movement within the party to get him not to run is going to pick up some speed because of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick Ben Reichley here. Appreciate your time this morning. Uh, one thing, if you could comment, it looked like Merrick Garland wanted to be anywhere but his funeral when he came out <laughs> and wanted to, you know, put this information out. So now, you know, we heard that, uh, you know, the, the attorney general for the Trump administration had to be for the American people. Now, Garland, of course, is Biden's hand-picked attorney general. Uh, you know, how, how far, how, you know, what is the hot seat that the DOJ is sitting on? And plus we have situations with the FBI. But when you look at Merrick Garland coming out, appointing a special prosecutor, he looked like all the weight was off him. But there's still this is going to run through the G- DOJ at some point. Yeah, I mean, the, the special prosecutor will be able to act somewhat independently. But, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, Garland does still have the authority that he could step back in and sort of pull the plug i think um you know he i i think it, i think you're right that he is feeling in the hot seat because they've already embarked on this case with president trump and i i do think i mean those two cases are independent with two special prosecutors acting on them 
But I don't see how they don't somehow result in similar outcomes, right? Because the two cases look very similar to me. There's probably a lot of details I don't know and, and nobody else knows, right? But on the surface, they look very similar. So either it's okay for a president to do that, and, you know, that is one of the arguments that President Trump has advanced at times, which, which means it's okay for both, or it's not okay, which is really what President Biden and most of the Democrats have said, meaning in that case, President Biden really just broke the law as well. And so, the, I mean, to the extent that the DOJ is influenced by politics, they are in a really tight spot now just because of what happened in the prior year with, with the case with President Trump. Well, I believe you discussed a little bit of it earlier when you said about the re-election, and now will the Democrats circle the wagon with Biden? But it seems like they're running away from Biden in some regards on the younger progressive side. But if, if you could allow me just to lay this out real quick. So here is the DOJ, even though they have special prosecutors. So the DOJ, ha- I believe has its hand on the scale for the next political election for 2024 in this way. You prosecute Trump, okay, you're swaying it towards Biden. You prosecute Biden, you're swaying it towards Trump. You prosecute both of them, does that leave that open then for open primaries? So very, very interesting how, you know, justice should be blind, but, you know, I don't think the American people are looking for blind faith going into 2024. I do think that most attorney generals and most departments of justice do strive for neutrality and for it to be blind, but I think it's relatively impossible to achieve because they are political appointees. So even if even if they like even if there's an attorney general that quite literally does not want to be partisan themselves, there's no way they can escape it by the nature of how they've come into their position, right? Um, so I I you know, I, I think that means that any outcome is gonna be somewhat suspicious to the American people, particularly in a case like this now, where you have both parties basically culpable of something, or the leaders of both parties that are culpable of something. I think the interesting thing about the political ramifications of it are that in the Republican Party, there's, I think there's a lot of viable alternatives to President Trump as potential candidates that will be competitive in the election. I'm not sure that's true on the Democratic side. And so while there's a lot of people that don't want Biden on that side, I don't think there's a clear alternative that people can sort of coalesce around. And I don't know if that gets brought into this, too, in terms of what the ultimate, you know, political outcome of it all is. But, um, well, you know, it is. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Professor, coming out of this, though, for for oh, it doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, Independent. But at some point, there has to be a clear understanding of what classified is. Hillary Clinton got caught up in this. You know, from the standpoint of talking to some people who were in bureaus down in Washington, and you know, the bureau CYA's itself and classifies everything. I mean, they classify the note that you sent to Mark and I saying, "Hey, you want to have lunch someday?" All of a sudden, that's classified. So, in fairness to these officials who are leaving office, what is classified? What isn't classified? There, there seems to be. I mean, the gray area is is too too gray. However, on the other hand. I, I think should we should we have comfort knowing that President Biden's Corvette is as safe as classified information? And incidentally, Nick's note asking us to lunch is stored in a box next to my okay. Ford. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Nick. I agree with you. I think that Congress needs to look at what legislation exists around this. There needs to be review of the executive rule. And I think somebody needs to go look at President Clinton, President Bush, and President Obama. This was one of the defenses that President Trump asserted, which is that what he did isn't all that unusual from other presidents. Biden, of course, we're talking about when Biden was vice president, but it's at least some evidence 
that that this has happened with another administration. I think I think we need to see you know if it's happened before that as well. And there needs to be much greater clarity around this is all how this is all handled. I think you're right on that. Well, I, th- I think we can say. Oops, I think ahead. we can say President Carter might be safe in this. He's 96 <laughs> years old. He might be okay. Yeah, there's a new rule. Yeah, I, I thought about that, too. I, plus, you know, how much of what would have been classified in this time is declassified at this point. But, yeah. Well, I think at some point in the U.S., I don't know if it's in the Constitution, but you become great, great, great grandfathered in, so you don't you don't have to worry about that kind of but stuff. We know a Corvette is safe, though. Yeah, about it, locked up. One of our listeners sends us a note, and you could reflect on this, Nick, since you've alluded to this a little bit. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the Democrats themselves planted the documents in there <laughs> just to get Joe Biden out of the way. Now, I'll extend that a little bit. It wouldn't surprise me if Kamala Harris planted those documents in there just to get the president out of the way so he wouldn't run for re-election. Well, let's talk about the dynamics of the next election. You know, we have a president that's, uh, you know, not even remotely uh, popular on either side of the aisle, and you have another presidential contender who's out there that's wildly popular for a fraction of his party. This is an unusual dynamic. Give us your reflection on the uh, 2024 prospects that we're looking at here. Well, it's—I mean—it's just so far out. It's hard to change. I, mean, I, I think clearly Governor DeSantis is on the rise, and I, I think he's probably going to be quite competitive if he does choose to run. Uh, there's obviously other. There's Nikki Haley. There's Christy Gnomes. There's there's uh, Pence is clearly out there. Uh, I think Pompeo may run. So there's just a, a lot of candidates. I think if President Trump remains in the race, and I suspect he will, but it's—you it, know—I wouldn't say that's a hundred percent. His chances are going to come down to sort of what his competition looks like and if there's a bunch of people that are going to sort of knock each other out by dividing support. Uh, on, on the Democratic side, I just, you know, like I said, I, I don't think, I think Vice President Harris is less popular with Democrats than President Biden is even, and obviously is with independents and Republicans. And it's just hard to look out there and see a list of candidates like you can on the Republican side. And so... That, that's where I'm, you know, I, obviously I think Mayor Pete and the Transportation Department is someone that potentially could run if, if President Biden does not. Um, but I think the Democrats are going to have to look to the governors, you know, and I, I don't know how many, I, I don't think Gavin Newsom's particularly competitive, so I don't know where they go in terms of that. But uh, so too far out, but it's, it's I, I think we're looking for a competitive race on the Republican side. And it's just kind of a mystery what's going to shake out on the Democratic side. But, but Nick, do you, I mean, Gavin Newsom is a political shark. I mean, he, he has the wherewithal to absolutely do nothing, little to nothing in California, and still feel that he's popular. He he came through the COVID crisis, which he, he should have been sausaged politically, and he came through and he and he feels like he's a filet mignon. I mean, so so he he is making his rounds quietly to know that he's available, and and the Biden people are trying to hold him off. However, the Democratic people, because even though reality might not be understood by the Democrats, the age of President Biden is understood by the American people and independent voters. So I agree with you. It'll be interesting. You know, the Republicans, you know, you hope the the cards shuffle around for the Republicans. We'll see. But uh, Newsom has his sights on this. 
plus people in California who I've talked to and have some business associates out there would be more than happy to get him out of California. I, he absolutely has his sights on it, and you know he. You're right. He does. He does know how to be effective in elections. I just it, this is probably more my personal bias. I just I don't think he's going to get it. I don't think he's going to be able to connect with a broad enough electorate within the Democratic Party, let alone the country as a whole. But, you know, it's, like I said, it's just hard to tell what will shake out. You know, we, we expect certain things, and they never happen that way. Well, yeah, we'll talk more about this as 2024 approaches. Yeah, a lot has to happen. That's uh, decades away in political time in terms of things that pop up in this uh, 24-hour news cycle that we're doing. Let's talk about Kevin McCarthy, who eventually was able to become the Speaker of the House, had already put up the sign outside the door, so I guess that <laughs> he's just uh, some sort of prophecy or something. No, no, but it's uh, coming soon, Speaker of the House. It, yeah, explain how his powers diluted, if at all. Lots of folks say that it is in one way or another. If you don't have this, or maybe we've started to see this already. I don't know about that. It's certainly possible, but, I mean, as many have pointed out, the, one of the significant rule changes, which is the vote to remove the chair, that, that was really present before Speaker Pelosi, and she removed it. So you could argue that his power has been somewhat diminished relative to her, but you know that that same rule was in there beforehand. There's probably an argument to be made that just based on the optics of it all, because he wasn't able to secure it on the first vote and it went on. Uh, and I think a lot of that's going to the way that plays out is going to be how he handles it, you know, in the in the aftermath. Which I think for the most part he he, he did it pretty well. Um, to me, the interesting thing with this is like when when we expect his power to be diluted it's because we're comparing him to Boehner and Brian. In both cases, they were each sort of candidates of, of the establishment, or they were speakers representing the establishment, and they were kind of competing against the sort of Freedom, uh, freedom Caucus on the other side. It's not one group of people, obviously, but there's kind of a, a, a coherent thing there. So the expectation is that's what's going to happen with McCarthy. I mean, he was their majority leader. Uh, under Boehner and under Ryan, and, and so you have this group now that was trying to prevent him from becoming Speaker to begin with. But I think the thing there, though, is that I think Kevin McCarthy has, over the last couple of years, really kind of aligned himself with that faction. He has become friends with some of them. You know, he's putting out a lot of the same rhetoric that they do. I think ideologically he advances some of the same positions. And so for his power to di be diluted, he would basically have to be doing what Boehner and Ryan did, advancing a kind of establishment-oriented agenda and trying to foil the sort of Freedom Caucus and doing what they want to do. And then if it was true that he was less powerful, right, they would be able to prevail. Like, they have the instruments and tools now to win out in a battle like that. I think he's... I don't know that those sort of types of conflicts are going to come about. I think he's largely going to support their agenda. And so... To me, it seems just as likely that he's going to end up in a, a, a conflict with his base, with the, the sort of moderate wing of the party, as it is that he will with the Freedom Caucus. Well, what's interesting is even though Scott Perry of Pennsylvania is the head of the Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan is really the straw that stirs that Freedom Caucus drink. I mean, he, he makes it, and he is a McCarthy ally. But, Nick, lo looking at this and being in touch with some people when this was going on, what's interesting is what the groups that were opposing McCarthy initially, or let's say they weren't opposing him, they just weren't supporting him right away. We're saying that, you know, they, they wanted to have some, some rules in there, and the rules go back to when the House was open for discussion or open for, for business. One thing was regular order on budgets. You know, this continuing resolution has been a joke. We, we have had budgets stuffed down the American people's throats and maybe up some other sides of, of things that just are ridiculous. 
But you look at regular order, you look at amendments that can come to the floor, you look at 72 hours to read a bill. I mean, anywhere... I would think most Americans would say this is somewhat common sense and this this works or we'd like our government to work like that. I mean Mark talks about the the vortex and the black hole but what these uh, that removes brains of people inside <laughs> yeah. the beltway incidentally. But, the but vortex. What, what these people were doing were were pretty pertinent and understanding what the American people would like, Democrat or Republican. I, I would like our legislators to be able to read the bill and vote on it 72 hours when it comes to and understand what's in it. So so I, I, I would say I, I believe the Republicans with a slim majority are almost stronger going in because they maybe showed themselves and the American people can understand what, what the this small group was sort of fighting for. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's going to depend on how coherent they remain. Uh, the, the Democrats in the last two years had a pretty small minority also, and they remain fairly effective at getting through their legislative priorities just because they, regardless of where they fell on the ideological spectrum, they stuck together, right? They voted the same. I think if, if the Republicans are able to pull that off, and of course they don't control the White House or the Senate either, but there's there's still a fair amount of the priorities that the Republican caucus in the House have identified that they could achieve. It's just it's just a question of sort of all staying together in the end, which is part of why, I mean, I think you're right in what you're saying about the rules changes and how a lot of those would be welcomed by the American public. The reason why anybody would be opposing them is because you know, it, it probably makes it easier to keep the caucus coherent as a whole, you know, with, you know, in a sort of old way with, with the rules how they were. But um, we'll see. Like yeah. I said, I, I don't know that it's going to pan out that way where they are as divided as people expect. Well, well, you realize Nancy Pelosi held that caucus. I mean, Nancy Pelosi was the Catholic nun teacher because if you looked at the Democrats' knuckles, if they got out of line, their knuckles got smacked because she held their money, she held their chairmanship, she held their committee position. So she ran a very tight ship, and now you see what, what happens. But, I mean, she, she controlled that group. We'll see if the House now is going to be more open under uh, Speaker McCarthy. All right. Anything else to add that you'd like to tell us? Maybe we didn't ask uh, on our body politic in Washington or, or even in Harrisburg next. I don't know. I'm kind of curious what you guys think of this this uh, speaker in Harrisburg. I think it's sort of interesting to see this arrangement come about, and I I don't know I don't know how long he's going to last or what he's going to get done. But it, it's sort of interesting to me to see a kind of nonpartisan or bipartisan effort at leadership there. Well. Uh, Representative Rizzo comes from Berks County. He's a uh, quasi-blue dog Democrat of, of a past term. He's uh, very, very open to uh, improving Pennsylvania per him. I uh, had a chance to talk to him briefly last year. Uh, interesting uh, gentleman. Uh, I, you know, but, Nick, here, here's the problem. In Harrisburg, it is truly a seesaw of majority. So depending on the situation, the Democrats will be the majority and then that afternoon the Republicans could be the majority. Uh, right now the representatives, if they're in session, they have to stay on the floor to hold majority, whichever group it is. And right now the Republicans do, but you're talking about the slimmest of slimmest margins. And also we're going to have a special election right here in our area for senatorial seat 27th district. I mean, the Linda Schlegel-Culver's running it for that. If she wins, she's going to leave the House, and then that's going to put another wrinkle into that. So uh, will he hold? It, it, you know, it looks very good to have an independent. 
down there or a person who wants to be an independent reality we'll, we'll see what happens because it is it is tough it is tough to uh, be in the position he's in and my two cents is uh, uh, we don't know who he is yet what we're going to see is if this uh, sexual assault uh, referenda doesn't make it to the ballot uh, it's hard to say what kind of a leader he will be because he wants this to go through more than anything and he's uh, trying to piece that together if it goes through he'll probably switch to independent and kind of be the uh, kind of the leader that both sides want to get things done. Well, it's very personal to him. Yeah, if it doesn't happen, uh, he's going to stay on as uh, about 50% vindictive leader, is my view. Nick, thank you so much for your observations yeah, Nick, and the question time. put to us. All very much appreciated, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. And thank you. That is Nick Clark, professor of political science at Susquehanna University.